Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. Welcome back to another episode of Psych Essentials. We're on episode three out of three of our series about psychotherapy. Right on. We are going to start with another example. You ready for it? So ready. This one involves you. Imagine that Lindsay gets an email from the dean of her medical school, and it says, I want to set up a meeting with you. A couple of different scenarios that could result from this. She could think... I'm in trouble. She's feeling scared. She's becoming physically tense. She's thinking, Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to finish medical school. Now she's feeling more scared and more tense. And then she thinks, I'm not going to be able to work as a physician and all this time that I've invested in this career will be for nothing. I've already got all this debt and this will be financial ruin. And given the atmosphere of a lot of medical schools, that would not be surprising for her mind to go down that train of thought. Or, let's rewind the tape. Lindsay might think... Hmm, I wonder what this is about. She could remember that not only is she a rock star, but she's been working on this project that's getting a lot of interest. And this is the time of year when they distribute those all-important medical school awards. And so she's thinking... Maybe they're going to give me an award, or they want to work with me on my project. And now she's feeling excited, and she's so motivated that she accomplishes way more work that afternoon. So clearly two different ways of thinking about the very same scenario. Yeah, and I think that these two scenarios illustrate some of the principles behind cognitive behavioral therapy. So we're lucky today to be joined again by the one and only Dr. Alyssa. Thank you. Thank you. Round of applause. (laughs) So Alyssa, let's start at the top. What is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT? Like, what is this? What does it stand for? There's the cognitive piece, the thinking part of it, how we think, the thoughts that we have. And then the behavioral piece is what we do. You can think of this triangle of thoughts and behaviors and feelings that all influence each other. And often in psychiatry, people are wanting their feelings to be different. They want to feel different. But it's not easy to just change how we feel. Otherwise, we'd all do that. So in CBT, we think about that triangle and we work on changing the thoughts and the behaviors with the end goal of changing the feelings. Sometimes people just say, well, just don't feel depressed and it would be okay. Right. If only it was that easy. But what you're saying is that changing how we think And what we do is underlying even how we feel about the world. Mm -hmm. And those are things that we can change. Okay. We talked last time about supportive psychotherapy and psychodynamic psychotherapy. And CBT, like both of those, can happen in these very formal therapy settings. But it can also be integrated into rounds or small interactions that you have with your patients or your own life. So it sounds like CBT is super practical in that way. It's It can be used across a variety of different settings, which is pretty cool. So I'm wondering, Alyssa, is there anything that all CBT starts with, like a foundational skill? CBT goes from the premise of you can't change something if you don't know what's going on. And so usually monitoring looks different for different kinds of treatments, but usually it's like documenting your mood 
in relation to the activities that you're doing or writing down specific events that happen and the thoughts and the feelings and behaviors that come out of them. Okay, so you track where you're at from a baseline. Mm -hmm. And then what are the techniques or or the ways that it teaches you to approach problems? First, from the perspective of behaviors, one of the techniques that I think is most broadly applicable, especially for medical students on psychiatry, is this idea of behavioral activation. And that is based on this idea that in general, we think that life is good because enough good things happen to us. And when people are depressed, what happens to the good things in their lives? They usually drop off, right? Yeah. People get socially isolated. They withdraw from things that they used to enjoy. They might lose their job. The idea in behavioral activation is that you are working to reincorporate those activities. So then you you have things that you enjoy and maybe you even become good at them. Like you get a sense of accomplishment because not only do you like pottery, but you've become really good at pottery mm-hmm. and you feel like, ah, I am making really good plates right now. Also, you probably develop some social connection, depending on maybe the hobby or the thing that you're doing, but you connect to other people. Mm -hmm. Ideally, doing pottery with others. Yeah, I only do group pottery. (laughs) Right. You want things that promote pleasure, mastery, and social connection. And like you were saying, it's hard to change, immediately change how you feel. But I'm imagining if I'm really getting into this pottery group, I'm really enjoying it and it's it's giving me a lot of pleasure. That would change how I'm feeling, doing these things. The mantra of behavioral activation is that you act based on plan rather than mood. And so though you might not feel like going to pottery initially, you go because you make that plan. And then eventually it becomes this self-reinforcing thing where like you like going because now you've made more friends and it's fun. Obviously, we would love for people to get great results on the first time that they go. We often have to help people to kind of do things over and over, take practice. Like most behavior change, it takes some practice. You know, you think about the times when you make this goal, you're like, I'm just going to start jogging. And you're sitting on your couch after work and you're tired and it's cold and it's dark and it's drizzly. And you're like, ugh, like now I don't want to do it. And it's so hard to motivate yourself. And what you're saying is initially, at least, you're not doing it because you feel good about it. You're just doing it because you have a plan and your plan says that you're going to jog. So like, darn it, you're just going to jog. Rarely do you regret the jog afterwards. Usually you notice that your mood is better. That's definitely the way exercise is for me. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful example where one of the most common things that people do behavioral activation with is exercise precisely because it has this activation energy. You don't really want to do it oftentimes, but then you feel a lot better. Say you had a patient who you were trying to do some behavioral activation around exercise. What kinds of things would you ask them? First thing I would start with is monitoring and have them track whether or not they're exercising each day and and how their mood is on days when they exercise versus days when they don't. Mm -hmm. I also think about getting really specific with people. So not just I want to jog more. You got to be specific. Like how many days do you want to jog? What time of day are you going to do this? You could even think about where will you go when you jog? Are you going to do with other people? Do you have all the clothes and the things that you need to get yourself really prepared so that there's, you're eliminating all these other things that can hold people up? Yeah, so you start up with monitoring, you get very specific. It's important to talk with people about what obstacles are going to come up when you do this because inevitably they are not going to feel like it, otherwise they would have already done it. You can ask them, like, you know, you're not going to feel like it. What will help you to try it anyway? Sometimes people say, 
I've got inspired and I am going to start by running a marathon. <laughs> like, but what, but then you're like, oh no, I'm not sure they're going to do it. And in the back of your mind, you're worried. Like, what if, what if they're not able to, what if they're too ambitious? Right. We see people swing that way where once they get into the groove, they are going and it would not be helpful for someone to make a goal of running a marathon. And then that is very unlikely that they can actually do it. And so we want people to make achievable goals. Often we'll have them do things that almost feel really small. But the idea is that like by starting with something small and manageable, then they can have they can feel good about having accomplished it. They get that positive reinforcement and the cycle continues. Do they keep monitoring throughout all of this? Mm-hmm. That will show them the more I do this, the more my mood improves, the more sense of pleasure and mastery that I get from it. It's almost like evidence in a way that you can really look through with your patient. Mm-hmm. Phew. Well, all of this behavioral activation stuff is getting me kind of stressed out. So do you got anything else? <laughs> Indeed. Relaxation. So how do you teach people how to relax? Because it's easy to say, like, hey, man, relax. But it usually does the opposite of that. Yeah. So as a theoretical background, we think of, especially in anxiety, this baseline parasympathetic activation is too low. And so we want to help them learn how to bring that up and tamp down their sympathetic drive. And one of the most common ways that we do that is by teaching a technique called progressive muscle relaxation. You guys heard of it? Indeed I have. Tell us the highlights. This is something you can find examples on YouTube. They're all over the place, but basically you have people tense and then relax their various muscle groups. Number one, it focuses their mind on something that is in the moment and centering them in a physical experience. And then it's also that practice of tensing and then releasing is a physically relaxing experience. We will often teach it to people as a coping skill, which it is in some ways. I think, though, that when it's best used, it's twice a day on a scheduled basis with the idea that you are making yourself a more relaxed, parasympathetic person. So should I do this when I'm sitting in traffic and stressed out and road raging at the people around me because they aren't driving fast enough? You could. Ultimately, you get to this idea of what's called cue-controlled relaxation, where you can just take one breath in and relax your whole body. But I think what you what you don't want to do is have people do it in situations where they are anxious and trying to expose themselves to something. So if someone has social anxiety and they go to a party and start doing progressive muscle relaxation, that would not be helpful because then it's telling them, well, I was okay at that party because I did this thing, rather than experiencing the emotions of actually being there. And maybe they're sitting in the corner squeezing their muscles instead of actually engaging right, with people. Right, it could interfere. <laughs> Right. Which leads us to the next behavioral technique, which is exposure. Yeah. This is something that you might use for a disorder like an anxiety disorder or, you know, classically like a phobia, like a fear of snakes or insects or planes or people because you're experiencing the things that make you nervous with the hope that you are less nervous because you've lived through it. You've experienced it. There's less fear. Mm hmm. People have strong reactions to it, especially when you are proposing that they do it. It can often kind of sound masochistic of like, why are we torturing people by making them handle snakes? Mm -hmm. It's very important to be clear with people that this is the most effective thing that we have to treat anxiety. It really works well. In the right situations with the right people. And thinking about why does exposure help? One thing that's important is that most of the time people, the things that people are anxious about are not as dangerous as they think or that that person's ability to cope with it is much greater than they think. 
so for example, if I'm really scared about spiders, the reality is that most of the time it's not as dangerous as I think they are, or I'm actually more able to deal with the situation than I think I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Fear by itself is is actually a protective emotion that it helps us get out of dangerous situations. But when it becomes the point where it's not helping us anymore, then it becomes anxiety. So, Alyssa, why does exposure work exactly? This is kind of an evolving thing in the field of CBT. Classically, we used to think of these things worked because of habituation, which is when you are anxious, you are in this precursor state to a fight or flight response. And so you're Heart rate is up. You're shunting all your blood to your muscles so that you can run away or fight if you need to. And your body can only stay in that sympathetic arousal state for so long. And so the idea with habituation is that you eventually wear that out and then you learn like, oh, I can be in the situation and I'm okay. Does that mean you should just throw yourself into all sorts of crazy situations that you're afraid of? Like a bucket of spiders? <laughs> no, that, that would be awful for me. For me too. Ditto. No, you don't want to you don't want to go too crazy because then you can have this situation called flooding, which is where you have like just gone so far off the deep end that actually people can't handle it. And then they leave the situation or they can't get the learning that they need to it. When we when we think about exposures now, we think more of this idea of what does this person need to learn from this experience? And so when you're preparing someone to do an exposure We get pretty specific about like, what do you think is going to happen and what would you need to have happened to show you that that's not actually the case? There's a lot of science behind this and people do it in very gradual steps, right? You do a little bit and then a tiny bit more and then a tiny bit more and usually you do it with your therapist and this is only after a lot of practice in advance of this, right? Yeah, this is not something that you should just be willy-nilly recommending that people do. Mm -hmm. Or throwing spiders at people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Broad picture here again. We said that cognitive behavioral therapy is broken into the cognitive part and the behavioral part. And so far, you've told us about three big behavioral parts. Those were behavioral activation, relaxation, and exposure. Those are three behavior, things that you do with your body. Let's talk about the cognitive part. When we think about cognitions, what do we start off with? We start by monitoring is what I'm guessing. Exactly. This is usually writing down the thoughts that you have and the emotions that come up along with those in response to various life situations. CBT is full of cognitive errors or ways that our cognitions are not helpful to us. The two most common ones are these ideas of overestimating the likelihood of negative outcomes and catastrophizing. These are two common cognitive errors that we all make, not just people with depression or anxiety. We all have these at times. Yeah. Overestimating the likelihood of negative outcomes. You're saying that objectively, maybe 50-50 that something could go wrong. You'd be like, oh, no, this is going to be like a a 90-10 situation. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning, in the example with Lindsay, even though it was unclear sort of the, the outcome of that letter was going to be, she just overestimated. She jumped to, no, it's going to be the worst thing possible. Mm-hmm. What we teach people to do about overestimating or to counter overestimating the likelihood of negative outcomes is to say, when you find yourself anxious, you need to treat your thoughts as hypotheses. Say, well, this is one possible explanation for what's going on in this situation. It might be that I'm in trouble with my medical school dean. This is a hypothesis. And what are the alternatives? You're kind of a 
co-scientist with your patient and you're looking at these thoughts as hypotheses that you can test and then you look at the evidence to see how uh, rational those thoughts really are, if they're really kind of more consistent with reality or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that's important with that when we think about looking at the evidence for our thoughts is that you can only use evidence that would be admitted in a court of law. If Lindsay said, like, if I asked her, why do you think that you're going to be in trouble with your dean? And she said, well, I just have this feeling. Would that be evidence that would stand up in court? No. No. So you have to have concrete facts. you got to have data about this. Hunches don't count. Right. Okay. Then can you distinguish that from catastrophizing? We have seen a little bit of catastrophizing here, too. You take a possibility and you go all the way to the worst possible outcome and not think about your ability to cope with it. So in the example at the beginning, Lindsay goes from, I have this meeting with my dean, I'm in trouble, to I'm going to fail out of med school, not be a doctor, be in debt, financial ruin. Like We go to the kind of worst possible conclusion pretty quickly, and she doesn't stop to think about all the things. Clearly, she's an incredibly capable person for having gotten into medical school and done all this. She would have some ways to cope along the way. She has other resources. She has support networks. There are other things in place. Mm -hmm. So these are two patterns, two types of thinking errors or unhelpful thinking. There's a lot, right? There's like probably a dozen or more types of ways that people's minds kind of trick themselves. And those are things that you would review in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. One guiding principle that you can think of is anytime that someone has a thought that seems extreme or far-reaching, or really even any thought that is causing you difficulties, you can stop and say, like, what does this really mean? How true is this? You can think of the thought that a lot of people have, I can't tolerate this. What does tolerate mean? Does it mean you're, you're not alive? Does it mean you feel uncomfortable? Those are two very different experiences. If you're listening to somebody talk, you might catch them make a statement that's really extreme or really outlandish, and that could clue you in, huh, maybe that was a thinking error they just had. Mm -hmm. It's not that we're trying to have people have positive thinking and seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, but that we are balanced and realistic in our thinking and accepting of the risk and uncertainty that is inherent in life, but people live with. Going back to the example with Lindsay at the beginning, it's not like she has to think, This is the best news ever. I must have won. More like, maybe this is good news or maybe this is bad news, but either way, I can handle it because I've handled things like this in the past. It seems like a very healthy, balanced approach to problems. Mm -hmm. It's not dismissing your problems. It's not pretending that they don't exist. It's approaching them without more error-prone thinking. Mm -hmm. What does CBT look like in a formal therapy setting? When we think about the therapies we talked about last time, supportive and psychodynamic therapy, almost uniformly CBT is a much more structured experience. And so often that involves using a manual or like a book that the patient and the therapist read together and it reinforces what you talk about in session. A lot of them have things like worksheets that you do together, homework that you do between sessions that you fill out and you bring back. Because it's not just like one hour a week kind of thing. You go home and you work on it and you practice and you come back. The manuals will sometimes have readings for patients, psychoeducation about whatever their condition might be, so that they understand the cognitive behavioral model better for their specific disorder. Right. And so that is a defining aspect of CBT is you practice outside of session. You have to do something more than just the hour a week that you're in therapy to try to generalize the learning that you're having. 
if you had a patient, let's say on the inpatient unit as a student, and you felt like they had depression or anxiety, and you wanted to kind of sit down and talk with them, would you ever look at one of these manuals and read it through yourself? Would that be okay? Yeah, these are great ways to learn more about CBT techniques and get more ideas for how you might approach it. The most common series of these manuals is by this publisher called Treatments That Work. And so that's kind of a surefire way to know that you are picking up a legit manual. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty easy to read, I think. You can also find some free manuals online. I cannot vouch for the quality of all of them. Yeah, there's a big Australian CBT group. Maybe we can post the link to this on the website. And they actually have free manuals. So that is a lovely resource. And I bet that your school's library has some resources as well. Mm -hmm. So today we've talked about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a different type of therapy that's grown out of the work of behavioralism, like what people do and this cognitive realm, like what they think in an effort to help people approach the world and approach their problems differently and hopefully get them feeling better. There's a lot of evidence behind cognitive behavioral therapy. There are a lot of studies that have been done that shows that this can really help people and it can really move the needle for how they're feeling. Right. So this is only like a basic overview of some of the fundamental components of CBT. Yeah. Thank you to Alyssa for joining us for these last three episodes. Thank you for having me. Of course. If you would like to hear more about specific types of psychotherapy or more about different aspects of doing therapy with people, send us a note. We would like to hear what you're interested in. You can check out our website. Leave us a comment. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also follow us. We're on Twitter and on Facebook at Psych Essentials. You can check us out on iTunes where you can rate, comment, and share Psych Essentials. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's always a link on our website. As usual, people, places, details where change protect confidentiality. Thank you, for Lindsay, for volunteering for this fictional scenario. And as usual, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.